0: Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak now. That as we open your word, because we know that it is inspired, because we know that you are the author of it. And we know that it is a living word. That though it was penned 2,000 years ago, it still has power and it still has life. And so I ask, Lord, that you would take this word and you would bring it to every mind that is here. I pray, Lord, that... If anyone here is still unconverted, Lord, I pray that you would open their minds to see Christ. And I pray for us who know you and for us who believe and trust in you, I pray that our minds would be renewed today by your truth so that we would get a better glimpse of Christ, so that we can get a better glimpse of the truth, so that we would grow in our knowledge, what would impact our walk before you. I ask that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word, and I ask that you would meet every person here, whatever they are, because you know each heart even better than we know ourselves, Lord. We ask that you would minister to us and be glorified through this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, and the focus today will be on verses 13 through 15 in the sermon entitled, Free to Love. If you had to pick one word that would set America apart from every other country for most of its history, you can argue that that word could be freedom. Perhaps the most famous words from the Declaration of Independence, which was issued on July 4th, 1776, are these words, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator, with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Fifty-six men who signed that document and thousands of others sacrificed their time, their treasure, and many of them even their lives to secure freedom this country enjoyed. You see, this was a declaration of independence from British rule. Perhaps the most iconic symbol that we have as Americans is the Statue of Liberty, which was given to us by friends. I mean, it stands 305 feet tall, and it declares to everyone who sees it that we are a land of the free. But are we? Are we? You see, the freedoms and rights that people in this land have enjoyed for centuries are being eroded with lightning speed. And on the one hand... It is tragic because the nation that has enjoyed such prosperity and such blessings because it was founded on biblical principles is throwing it all away and is leading the world in promotion and celebration of wickedness. But on the other hand, it is not surprising because the land of the free is led by those who are not free. And those who live in the land of the free are actually not free. I think the question that we should ask or we could ask is, what is freedom anyway? If you were to take a dictionary, Oxford Dictionary, it says that freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Now, if we take this definition to its logical conclusion, we have to argue that no one is free, including God. No one is free according to this definition. See, there is no being in the universe that is completely free from restraint or hindrances. Now, I'm not saying that God is not Almighty and He cannot do whatever He wants because Scripture clearly teaches that. Jeremiah, for example, says in Jeremiah 32:17, "O Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm; nothing is too difficult." For Now, you heard heard people ask questions like, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? I mean, if he's all-powerful, then he should be able to create that. And if he is all-powerful, then how come he can't lift it? And it sounds so clever, and you think that, you know, they think when they ask this question, they got you, unless you understand that there are things that God cannot do. God can never go against his own nature. For example, God cannot lie. Something he can do. Titus 1.2 says, In the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God cannot change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change God is not tempted by sin, nor can he sin. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You see, if God were to do these things, he would cease to be God. So even God himself is restrained by his own nature. Now, if that is true of God how much more true it is of all of us. You see, that's why it's so important to understand the concept of freedom. What is freedom? Now, to the extent that we can and we have opportunity, we should fight for political freedom. Use every legal means that you have to resist tyranny and fight against oppression. But don't forget that many of those who enjoy the blessings of liberty are not free themselves. You see, as we look at our text in verses 13 through 15, Paul addresses the subject of freedom. And I want to approach this text under two headings. First, we will talk about the need for freedom. The need for freedom. And second, we'll talk about the nature of freedom. The need for freedom and the nature of freedom. Let's read Galatians chapter 5 verses 13 through 15. Paul writes this, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Let's begin with the need freedom. Paul says in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. You remember a number of months ago when we began the study of the book of Galatians, I gave a one-sentence summary of the whole book, and it was this, since you are freed and justified by faith, keep standing in freedom. You see, when we Looking at the book of Galatians, freedom stands at its core. Paul's goal is to describe the freedom that you have, to defend that freedom, and to encourage you to stand in that freedom. The first mention of it was in chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. You see, there were some who wanted to rob Christians of the freedom which they have in Christ, and they wanted to bring them back into slavery. A few weeks ago, we looked at the illustration at the end of chapter 4, where Paul compared a free woman with the woman that was a slave And he says, if you are in Christ, if you have believed and trusted in Christ, you are a descendant of that free woman, and therefore you are sons who enjoy freedom. But if you have not trusted Christ, you are a slave. And Paul concluded that section with the following words in chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. If Christ gives you freedom when you come to him, what does that say about your past? It simply means that you didn't have freedom. That prior to coming to Jesus, you were a slave. Now, this is not very popular, and it is hard for many people to grasp. And that is not a new phenomenon, because it was always like that. It was always like that where people who enjoy their sin, who live in sin, they think that they are free. Now, just to give you an illustration of this, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is one of those discourses that Jesus had with the Pharisees and with the crowds that followed him. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says this, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples of mine. Now, notice that these words are addressed to people who believed in him. Notice what Jesus does not say, congratulations. You've signed your name on the card, so you're in. Congratulations. No, no, no. Jesus stops him and says, listen, that's very good that you have believed in me. Very good. But if... You continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Which means that if you do not continue in my word, then you're not my disciples. Then whatever happened to you, whatever profession you made, it wasn't a genuine profession. True disciples are known by the fact that they continue in my word. And he says, if you continue in my word, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Again, notice Jesus here implies that if you do not come to Jesus, if you do not believe in Jesus, you do not have freedom. You are not free because you need to come to Jesus. You need to come to the Word of God, and then the Word of God will set you free. Now, his listeners understood the implication, and that's why in verse 33 they say, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, if you think self-awareness is dead today, take comfort because it's been dead for a long time. I mean, did you forget about Assyrians? I mean, what about Babylonians? I mean, what about current occupation by Rome? We've never been enslaved by anyone? But notice Jesus is talking about something that is even much deeper than being enslaved by some power. Notice verse Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. You see, it is one thing to get out of the subjugation from Assyrians or Babylonians or Romans or the Great Britain. It's one thing. But it is something else to be set free from your sin. You see, even when you declare your independence from those powers, you are still a slave. And notice he says that in this slavery, you have a master, and your will is aligned with the will of your master, and you freely carry out the desires of your master. You act according to your nature. Look at verse 37. Jesus responds and says, "I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you." Verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So what do we learn from this? Before conversion, you are not free. Before conversion, you have a father. And according to Jesus, your father is the devil. The nature of the devil is to lie, to kill, and destroy. And therefore, since you possess his nature, you work out his desires in your own life. But because your will is so fused with his, you think like, I love this stuff, and you're doing his his will. You are carrying out the desires of your father, as Jesus says it here. Listen to how Paul describes an unconverted person. 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, the Lord's bond sermon must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if, perhaps, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So much for free will here. No, no, you are bound to your master and you're carrying out his will, he says here, you are in a drunken stupor and you are being held captive by your master. That is not a description of freedom. When you are bound, when you are held captive, where you're carrying out someone else's will, that is not freedom. And Jesus says, and Paul says, that is every single unconverted person. Every single unconverted person. Now, do you see why there is a need? For freedom. This is not just people in the first century because this is all of us. Every single person who was born from Adam has that same sinful nature. That's why Jesus' words in verse 35 and 36, they're so precious. Because in verse 35 he says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So, if the son makes you free, you will be free Indeed. You see, this is the invitation that Jesus gives to come to freedom. Now, this is what Paul refers to in our verse, in verse 13, when he said, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Galatians, you were in slavery prior to your conversion. You were idolaters. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 8, he says, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. You were idolaters, you were slaves to demons. That's what Paul says, you were not truly free. Now notice, in this sense here, freedom is defined by your relationship to Christ. If Christ is not your master, then you are not free. Someone else is your master. He says, prior to coming to Christ, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. If you are in a proper relationship to Christ, you have freedom, regardless of where you live. You might be in the United States, or you might be in North Korea. But if you are in the right relationship with Christ, he says, you will be truly free. Why? Because you are no longer a slave, but a son. But here's a challenge that Paul highlights in the book of Galatians. You see, even though that is true that if you are a Christian, you have received freedom, you have been given freedom in Christ, and yet you are still tempted to and sometimes fall back in the patterns of slavery of your old life. I mean, it would be amazing if we can sign Declaration of Independence from sin in the flesh, and then the flesh, with its sin, would get on the boat, go across the Atlantic, go to Great Britain and stay there and never bother us again. That would be awesome, right But if you've been Christian for any length of time, you know that that is not true. That's not what happens when you get saved. Martin Lloyd Jones gives this helpful illustration. He said, "Imagine that you are a slave in the southern United States before the Emancipation Proclamation. You have no rights, you can't vote, you have no power, and anyone can beat you or even kill you. You're walking into a town and some white guy starts yelling and screaming at you, and you're afraid for your life, and because you are terrified and you have no power, you have no rights, you will do anything and everything that he tells you to do because you're terrified. Now fast forward 10 years, and the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, and now, because it was issued, you have rights, you have power, you have freedom. But imagine you walk back into that same town, and that same guy starts yelling and screaming at you again, and what do you do? Because of your past, because you remember what it was like back then, intellectually you know in your head that you are free intellectually you know that you have rights now that he can't abuse you but you revert back to the old ways because that's how you used to live that's how you used to be and even though in your mind you know that hey i'm free i have rights yet very often you don't live like that now that is a good illustration and accurately pictures christian life you see If you are in Christ, you have been set free from your old master. You have been set free from sins. And in your head, you know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But tomorrow morning, or last Monday, you are tempted with something. And your flesh tells you, oh, you must do this. And like obedient slave you and I go back and start living the same way like we used to live. And even though in our heads we know that we have been set free, in our heads we know that we shouldn't live this this way, and we can live a different life, and yet we still revert back to the old way of life, and we live like slaves. You see, you're still tempted to live like a slave, and you're tempted to submit to those who are no longer your masters. Because you see, sin in the flesh is not your master anymore. You don't have to obey them. You can say to them, no, thank you very much, goodbye, I have a different master. I mean, Scripture tells you that you have freedom. And this is the battle that we all face. You have been given freedom. But what does that mean, and how do I appropriate that freedom? To answer this question, let's look secondly at the nature of freedom. What is the nature of Christian freedom? Before that, we can say it this way. Christian freedom has two basic enemies. Two basic enemies. On the one hand, you have legalism, and on the other hand, you have license. And the book of Galatians deals with both of these. On the one end of the spectrum is legalism. Now, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 8, look at this. Paul is warning Galatians not to go back and live their life as legalists. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, what are you doing? How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He gives an example. You observe days and months and seasons and years. He says, you have been set free, but how come you're just like that slave? You go back to that town, and you put yourself under that old master, and you say, I want to be that. In fact, what you're doing is a little different, because you were slaves of idolatry, you were slaves of pagan gods and demons, and you were delivered from those, and now you go back and you subject yourself to a Jewish law. You're jumping from a frying pan into a fire. You ran out of one slavery, and you're running into a different slavery. You see, as we said last time, Legalism, in legalism, what you do supersedes that which Christ has done for you. You see, legalism says something like this. You are saved by grace, but this grace requires obedience. Now, grace, by definition, cannot require anything because it is no longer grace. Right? Grace is a free gift. So God does not say, I will show you grace if you do this or that or the other. No, grace is a free gift. It has nothing to do with what you do. Grace is free. And as soon as you say that it requires something, it ceases to be grace. You see, obedience is not a requirement of grace, but it is its outcome. And this seemingly insignificant distinction is what separates legalism from Christian liberty. Obedience is not a requirement of grace, but it is its outcome. So on the one hand, if you're a legalist, your flesh and people will come alongside of you and say, well, if you're a Christian, great. We are saved by grace, but we've been shown grace, and God requires that you do this, that, or the other, because if you don't, sorry, no grace for you. That's legalism. On the other hand, there is license. The biblical word for license is licentiousness. Listen to Jude 4. Jude says this, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, who do what? Who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord. You see, license says something like this. Because all sins are forgiven, I can sin. Or because all sins are forgiven, I don't have to do anything. If legalism on one hand says, I must do things to be righteous, license says, I am righteous, so I don't have to do anything. Notice these are the two extremes, the two polar ends of the spectrum. Now, it is absolutely true that you do not have to do anything to be saved. You are saved by grace. And you see, when you preach this gospel of grace, you might be accused of preaching licentiousness. And if you are, you're in good company. Because Paul was accused of that. Remember in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, he says, And why not say, as we are slenderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. However, it is not true that if you are saved, you don't have to do anything. You see, once you are saved, something changes. Because we looked at verse 6 last time, and remember in verse 6 of chapter 5, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Notice it is faith that works for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not as the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice, it is the outcome of your faith. When you place your faith in Christ, you are accepted because of the work of Christ. But guess what? Once you are redeemed, once you are saved, you are called to obedience because that's what faith will produce in you. That's why Jesus said, you are my disciples if you continue. Because if you don't continue, then nothing happened. There was no internal transformation. Nothing changed on the inside. You are still the same person as you were before. Faith Always makes itself evident. So, what is the nature of Christian liberty? We can put it this way Christian liberty is freedom from sin and its penalty, and freedom to obey God out of genuine love for Him. Let me say that again Christian liberty is freedom from sin and its penalty, and freedom to obey out of genuine love. For him, You see, Christian freedom is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. Now, we have seen Paul's warning for against legalism. But notice now he warns his readers against abusing the freedom that they have in Christ. Look at verse 13. He says, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity. For the flesh. Now I mentioned that in Romans chapter 3, Paul was accused of being a libertine. Well, he preaches against the law, so that must mean that Paul says, well, go ahead and do whatever you want. Disobey God. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, freedom is not being untethered from God's standards. I mean, imagine a train going down the tracks. And you got the engineer who is controlling the train, and you know, he's sitting there, and he begins to think to himself, listen, these tracks are so restraining. I mean, I want to go where I want to go. Why do I have to go on these tracks? I want... Now, what happens to a train when you take it off it its tracks? Well, the same thing happens when you take a Christian and then tether him from God's law. Train wreck. That is exactly what happens. You see, freedom for a train is to stay on the tracks. And freedom for a Christian is to stay within the margins of the Bible. That's where freedom is. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh? Now, first, this word flesh here, because it is used in two senses in the Bible, or at least here in the book of Galatians. On the one hand, flesh could refer just to your physical body. Remember the famous verse in chapter 2, verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What is he talking about here? The life which I now live in this body, the Lord has left me here for some time and it is the Lord who lives through me. In this case, Paul is referring to physical body. But most often, overwhelmingly in this book, when the word flesh is used, we're talking about the sinful inclination of a fallen mankind. It is the sinful self-will that sets itself in opposition against God. This is going to be the subject of the battle that he's going to outline in the rest of this chapter, or even the rest of this book. Look at verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desire. So here's what Paul is saying. He says, believers have crucified the flesh, but while that is true, the flesh can still operate to some extent. You see, the war has been won, but the battles in some places are still raging. Now, if we are told here not to give an opportunity to the flesh... It means that we can give opportunity to the flesh, right? Because if it's defeated foe, if it's dead, it, can, it can't do nothing, so you would need this warning. But when he says, do not give an opportunity to the flesh, he's telling you, listen, there is a place in your life where flesh can take a beachhead in your life, and from that beachhead, it will operate. So do not give flesh an opportunity. Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, when he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. No consider. Count yourself as dead to sin. Dead people do not respond. If you ever saw a dead person, you can come, you can push him, you can poke him, you can prod him. doesn't respond. And that's what he's saying. Listen, if you, if sin comes and tempts you and attacks you, play dead, you don't respond. Consider yourself dead, which means you don't respond to that. Now, if you're a slave, again, walking into that city after the proclamation has been meant that you have your freedom, and someone comes along and tells you, listen, do what I tell you to do, tell them take a hike. That's what he's saying. You're dead. Those laws are dead. They no longer apply to you. They're no longer your masters. They can make you do what they want you to do, even though they will try to. Because in the very next verse, Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust." Now, when he says here, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, what does that imply? That sin can reign in your body, even though you are a Christian. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't need this command. You wouldn't need a command not to give an opportunity to the flesh. You wouldn't need a command not to let sin reign in your life. And that's what Paul says, verse 13, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness. We read Romans 13 at the beginning of the service. He says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no Provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So when he says here not to give opportunity and to make no provision for the flesh, Paul is saying that we voluntarily restrict our freedom to eliminate the sources of temptation in our lives. That is what he's saying. You voluntarily restrain your freedom, even though there are some things that you can do, some places you can't go, but because you know that's where your flesh operates, he says, I'm going to cut that off. I mean, isn't that what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, when he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, do what? Tear it out from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Notice he says, when you abuse freedom, you lose freedom because you become slaves of the things that you obey. Because you might think, well, I'm free to do that. I'm a Christian. I have Christian liberty. I have freedom to watch. I have freedom to go. I have freedom to do. And he says, Sure, you do have freedom, but if you go and the flesh takes the higher hand and now you subject yourself to the flesh, notice you lost your freedom because now you you are a slave of the one whom you obey. You're not obeying righteousness, you're not obeying holiness, but you're obeying your flesh, and guess what? Flesh is not supposed to be your master. The devil is not supposed to be your master. You've been set free, you've been given victory. And you see, there is a reason why you now can say no to flesh and sin. You can, and the reason why, because now you are a new creation. You are no longer a slave, but you are a son. You have been delivered out of slavery, and you have been brought in. You have been given a new master. And not only that, but specifically in our context here, which we will develop later on as we continue in this chapter, he says you can say no to flesh because you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. Listen, on our own, we cannot defeat sin in the flesh. You have no power. That's why no matter how many rules you come up with, no matter you know, what fences you build, your flesh will overpower you because you, cannot, you do not stand a chance against the flesh, and neither do I. But you have power that can overcome. That's why the very next verse for next Sunday will be, But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now notice what the verse does not say. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not have desires of the flesh. Is that what it says? No. He says, you will not carry them out, which means that your old master shows up and says, hey, do this. And you would be like, no. I'm not going to carry out your orders. So he's saying, why? Because you're so powerful? No, because you have power of the Spirit that enables you to resist flesh and not sin. Now, if you do not use your freedom to indulge in sin, what do you use your freedom for? He says, verse 13, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. I mean, this is the strongest contrast possible. Do not do this, but do this. And in fact, you're going to do one of those. If you're not doing this, you will be doing this. So he says, rather than using your freedom to indulge in sin and obey your flesh, he says, take your freedom and serve one another through love. It's a command. Serve one another. In fact, the translation here does not do justice because you know the root word of this. The, word, the root word here is doulos. You know that word? You know that word. It means slave. But he says here, but through love become slaves of one another. You say, you mean you want me to jump out of one slave or into another? Yeah. I hate to break it to you, but you will always be a slave. The only question is, whose slave are you? That's what Paul was talking about. You are slaves of righteousness or you're slaves of sin. And so he says here, listen, you've been delivered from slavery of sin, but now you voluntarily, like that slave in the Old Testament, you remember? He says, I love my master. I'm not going anywhere, even though I have my freedom, I'm going to submit to my master. And that's what he's saying here. You submit to your master, and you say, I am your slave. And he says, you become slaves of one another. Listen to how Paul concludes Romans chapter 16. He says, but thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Notice, you went from one master, you went to another. You're still not free. Your freedom, see, your freedom, human will, is always subject to two wills, either to God's will or to the devil's will. He says, you were a slave of the devil because you carried out his will. But now, he says, you voluntarily say, hey, I want to do what the Lord wants. I want to carry out righteousness. He says, you became slaves of righteousness. And in verse 22, he says, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, You derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You see, one freedom leads to death. The other freedom or the other slavery leads to eternal life. If you're a slave of sin, the outcome is death. If you're a slave of righteousness, the outcome is eternal life. That's what Paul says here. Rather than... Enslaving yourself to your flesh and to your carnal desires, why don't you become slaves of one another? How? He says, through love. Through love. You see, love is the means by which you serve one another. You see, instead of seeking to satisfy yourself and satisfy your flesh, he says, why don't you seek to serve another person? Serve one another. When you are busy loving God and loving people, you will eliminate opportunities from the flesh. He says, become a slave of others. Now in verse 14, Paul does something interesting. Because up until now, everything that Paul said about the law was to say, listen, stay away from it. Do not obey it because you're no longer under the law. But notice what he does here. He quotes the second greatest commandment and he says here that You know, there is actually a way to fulfill the whole law. Because you remember, these Judaizers were telling them that you must obey all these rules and all these regulations because you must keep the law. Paul says, here's a way to do it. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You take commandments of God, and they're summarized under these two headings. You love God. And if you love God... He will be your only God. You will not worship other gods, right? You will dedicate and you will keep the four commandments. If you love others, you will not violate the next six commandments, right? He says the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But again, Paul is not saying here that we are somehow subject to the Old Testament law and therefore now he finds a loophole how to fulfill that law. Because you see, Christ fulfilled the whole law for us. All of it, civil, ceremonial, and moral law. God, Christ fulfilled on our behalf. We are not any part of the Mosaic law. However, that does not mean that we are not under a law. Just a different law. What's interesting is if you just go to the next chapter and look at verse 2. He says, bear one another's burden and thereby fulfill what? the law of Christ, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You see, God who gave Mosaic law is the author of this law as well and of every law that came prior to this. So you might see that in these laws, the ethics are the same and even some of the commandments are the same because they come from same God. First 1 Corinthians 9, Paul explains, explains his approach to reaching unconverted. And listen to this, because this is very interesting. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says this, For though I am free from all men. Sounds like our text here, right? You've been called to freedom. I'm in Christ, therefore I am free from all men. And yet, I have made myself a slave to all. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Paul says, you've been set free, so now enslave yourself to others. And Paul says, I have made myself a slave to all. For what reason? Because I'm a man pleaser. No, so that I may win more. And he gives examples. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under law. So Paul's saying, hey, when I go to Jews, I don't necessarily offend them by doing things that will offend them. There are things that I can do not to be offensive. And so when I, you know, if I'm you know, hanging out with the Jews, I'm not going to pull out my pork sandwich here and like, eat it. I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to necessarily offend them, right? And he says, to those who are without the law, as without law. And listen to verse 21. This is what I want you to pay attention to. He says, to those who are without law, outlaws, as without law. And then he gives this caveat, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Notice he says, even when I go and talk to outlaws, I don't just throw off all the restraints and say, yeah, I can sin whatever, do whatever I want. No. He says, why? Because I am under the law of Christ. You might ask, well, what is the law of Christ? And we can simply say that the law of Christ is the law of love. It is the law of love. If you read the book of James, in James, James calls it the royal law, or he calls it the law of liberty. You see, this is the law under which you now operate in the new covenant. The Old Testament law has been set aside. Christ has fulfilled it all for you. Now you operate under a different law. And notice what Paul stresses in our text here is the horizontal love that you have for one another. And the reason why he does that, because horizontal love is only possible if there is a vertical love between you and God. The first commandment in the Old Testament under the old law was you shall love the Lord your God, right? That's the first thing, and without that, nothing else is possible. So when he says here that you are to love one another, he's arguing that you will only be able to do that if you keep the first and if you have a relationship with Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says we love. Why? Because He first loved us. The only way you are able to show horizontal love is because you have experienced the vertical love And he says, if someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Which is saying that if you have experienced vertical love, you will demonstrate horizontal love. And Paul says the whole law is fulfilled in this. You see, love is the proof that you have experienced the love of God. Love for your neighbor is a demonstration of the fact that you have experienced the grace of God. That's what we're saying. If that has happened to you, if you have truly believed, if you are a child of God, if you live in freedom, if you have been set free, it will demonstrate itself in your obedience. And what is love? I mean, Jesus says, this is love that you do what? That you keep my word. They keep my commandments. And by the way, you don't have to go to the Old Testament and find some laws to obey there. There are plenty of laws in the New Testament. There are plenty of commands under this covenant. And think about this. If you summarize the whole law under one word, love, then he says here, listen, you have a lot of obligations. As a Christian, you have a lot of obligations. I mean, just think of all the one another's in, in the New Testament. I Just do all those. And if that's not enough, then we can talk about something else he says do that love one another and what happens when there is no love what happens if you don't obey this well verse 15 happens verse 15 says but if you bite and devour one another take care that you are not consumed by one another I mean Paul had a way of writing with graphic language or graphic pictures right I mean the idea of biting devouring consuming I mean imagine these wild animals fighting trying to chew each other up. That's what he's saying here. It's a deadly struggle here. And he says, when you have no love, that's what happens. This is opposite of love. And notice says you will consume one another. Pretty soon you will eat each other up. Your churches will cease to exist. Your fellowships will fall apart. Why? Because there is no love. Re- recently, we listened to a book that chronicled the devolution of the Westboro Baptist Church. Okay? Right? Now, when they were in the news all the time, they were known for biting and devouring everyone else with their signs and their protests. But with time, they turned on one another and began to eat their own. Why? Because of this. That's what Paul says. This is a clear demonstration of what happens when there is no genuine love for one another. You will consume one another. That's what happens. And Paul was warning Galatians that if your fellowship is not characterized by love, but rather by biting and devouring one another, you will see, soon cease to exist. You know, Jesus didn't say, you will, people will know that you're my disciples if you bite and devour one another. No? No. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you do what? If you love one another. Love one another. You see, love is what governs all of the relationships under the New Covenant. It is love for God, and it is love for God's people. Now, no better illustrations of this can you find than Jesus himself. In that same chapter where Jesus commanded us to love one another, you remember how the chapter begins, John 13? Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And what did he do next? He washed their feet. He says, through love, serve one another. You see, that was the demonstration of this new law that he has given. I mean, think about all the relationships that you have, all the people that you have in your life, and you don't have to create rules of things that you have to do to be accepted by God. He says, think of it, if you have been saved, if you have been redeemed and experienced the grace of God, love that person the way Christ loved you. I mean, this is higher than any law. This is higher than any rule. Love that person as Christ has loved you. Can you live up to that? That's the whole point. That's what he's saying. Through love, serve one another, become slaves of one another, and thereby you will fulfill Christ's calling for your life. I want to close with just two practical questions that we all can ask ourselves. In what area of my life am I given the flesh a beachhead to operate from? I mean, based on the first part where Paul says, listen, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul says, do not use your freedom to give your flesh a beachhead to operate from. Just because you are saved, just because you've been set free. Don't think like, oh, I can do whatever I want. I can go anywhere I want. And Now, you know yourself better than anyone else. And the question that you can ask yourself, where in my life am I giving the flesh an opportunity to operate from? You give your flesh an inch and it will take a mile. Because you know your temptations better than anyone else. If someone comes along and they devise a plan for you and say, hey, you should do this, or you should that, do that. It's not going to work. But you know your heart. You know what tempts you. You know where you fall, and you know where you give the devil opportunity to operate. Well, just this little room here, just this little closet here. So ask yourself, where am I doing that? And Paul says, hey, don't do that. So what does that mean? That you give him eviction notice. You don't, you're not operating here anymore. By the power of grace and by the power of God, you are not subjecting yourself to that master anymore. Different master moves into that room or into that closet and operates there. That's what he's saying here. Do not give an opportunity. And again, what's so amazing here is not just to beat you over the head because, oh, guess what, you have sin in your life. Oh, yeah, we all do. We all struggle. But you know, the power of grace is that we are called to live holy lives and we are actually able to do that because the power of the Spirit is present in you. Because you are a new creation. And what's encouraging here, Paul says, hey, it's possible for you to do that. It is possible for you to let God do that in you. It is possible for you to let Christ dwell in you and live through you. So you ask yourself, where's that beachhead in my life? What closet is there that I still haven't opened or where I'm hiding things? And open that to grace. Open that to Christ. Here's the second question. How can I practically serve others through love? Again, I mean, we can apply this and say, well, you need to plug into this ministry or that ministry. And I don't know all the people that you know, and I don't know all the opportunities that you have. But ask yourself a question. Where has the Lord placed me, and what opportunity has the Lord given to me where I can actually love someone and serve someone? The Lord has placed you into this body. I mean, maybe you're going to say, I'm going to commit to me praying for someone regularly. That's love. That's labor of love. That's work. I'm going to commit just to come and encourage somebody, to be there for somebody. Maybe there are some practical needs that you know of. Say, hey, I want to love on this person because I want to meet his need. That's what he's saying here. And he says, you actively employ this mindset that I am a slave of the people that are around me. And what I owe them is love. I owe them love. I'm not free and say, hey, I'm an island here. I can survive on my own and everybody will serve me. No. He says, you take the mindset that you are their slave and you want to do that, not because you have a duty to do that, but because you said, he said, you genuinely love them. Why? Because you have experienced grace. Because you have experienced love. You get rid of sin out of your life. And instead of focusing your time and your resources on fulfilling those desires, he says, employ yourself to others and be their slave. And when you do that, that is Christian freedom. That is really Christian freedom because for the first time in your life, when you come to Christ, you can say no to sin. Because if you are unconverted, you don't just tell the devil to take a hike. You don't, because he's your master. He's going to do it. And your will is aligned with that. But Christian freedom, because you are now in Christ, you can actually do that. And you can, by the power of the Spirit, become slaves of others. And serve them through love. May God give us grace not to use our freedom to indulge in sin. But rather to fervently love one another from the heart. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace. We ask for grace to properly assess ourselves and our lives. And we ask for grace, Lord, to open those dark closets perhaps. And to let the light shine. Spirit of God, we pray that you would empower us to say no to sin, but rather we ask that you would open our eyes to see opportunities and ways through which we can serve one another. We pray, Father, that each person here would hear that call to be holy and to serve one another, and by that, to serve you. We thank you for your word. For your glory we pray this. Amen.